Hello, and welcome to our conversation on Naturopod Live. This is a conversation platform for education leaders to share experiences and ideas. Our guests are looking to inspire each of us to envision what's possible and to put action behind that inspiration. My name is Brigitte Lomez. I am passionate about creating a sustainable future with the actions we take today, and, are, and so are today's very special guests. There is no doubt a clear movement in K-12 education is, is moving along, where they're looking to make school more relevant to students' lives, more engaging and immersive than traditional curriculum. Students are identifying real-world problems, coming up with meaningful solutions and presenting them to authentic audiences, supporting them to become more engaged, informed and compassionate citizens is really our ultimate goal. Jenny, Keith and I are here today as we share a deep passion for preparing students to co-create a just and sustainable future. We also share a deep concern for the future of our planet and our society. Simply put, life on earth and humanity's quality of life on this planet are at stake. And this work is deeply personal for us all. So let's introduce our guest today. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Keith. Hey, Bridget. Howdy nice there. See you. Well, you know, let's start with you, Jenny. You and I have been incredible friends and colleagues for many, many years, meeting due to mutual friends and a, a mutual project um, together. But, um, you know, I know you very well. Why don't you share with the audience some of the, you know, who you are, what brings you joy, and some of your real kind of key highlights over your incredible career? Great. So I am Jennifer Seidel. I'm the executive director of the Green Schools National Network. I reside here in Iowa City, Iowa, where it is all of um, two degrees today with a wind chill <laughs> of minus 20. Um, so I am bundled um, and excited to be here. I think um, what I bring to the Green Schools movement is 40 plus years in K-12 education in a variety of roles, a teacher, uh, a leader, a school leader, faculty, um, developer of new schools, um, curriculum and instruction expert. Um, however, the one thing that has flowed, that has tied and um, my career together is a commitment to real world learning and um, making uh, environmental education and connecting everybody to the planet and helping them understand that they are ecological citizens and they have um, every action they take has an impact on not just on themselves, but on future generations. And so our my campaign right now is that we need to do this work, not just for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children, um, generations beyond us. The work that Green Schools National Network does, I don't know if you want me to share, we have 300 schools in our network across the country who are really blazing, trailblazing, um, blazing the trails to, to chart what's possible and demonstrate what's possible in K-12 education. We're no longer educating for an industrial revolution. We are educating for a sustainable revolution that incorporates equity uh, and justice as much as it does um, honoring and living in balance with the planet and the resources, the finite resources that we have available to us. So 
that has been a theme in my career forever. And it's been an honor, it is an honor to be the leader of the Green Schools National Network and paving the way for others to follow. Wonderful, wow. I mean, and there's so much more uh, to share, Jenny. So thank you so much. And Keith, um, I've had the pleasure of visiting your school, Discovery Elementary. Um, in person. And of course, we share the same passion and love for children. Um, tell us a bit more about your career highlights and what brings you joy about your work. Uh, as an avowed revolutionary trying to change the nature of public education to serve its ultimate aim, which, as we discussed, is serving the every need of every child in an authentic way. That authenticity is critical to me. Um, I started off my career as a music teacher, but eventually moved into educational leadership precisely because I felt that I had a role to play in helping people who believe in the things that we believe in change the practices as well as the environment, not just the pedagogy, but the schoolhouse itself to mm -hmm. truly serve our future needs. Um, I'd say that my career highlights, other than the work that I've done in my research around standards-based assessment, um, really the highlight of my career uh, is probably discovery. Um, discovery Elementary School is a really revolutionary place, and it's critical as we look at revolutionizing schools, as we look at fundamentally questioning the industrial neoliberal premises upon which 20th century public education has kind of been bent, as we look at creating circumstances that are ideal for children, um, we need to be able to challenge the status quo, but to show that it can work within existing structures. Mm -hmm. So Discovery as a 100% public school, no charter, no private, no lottery system. It's a mm -hmm. local neighborhood school to have built a kind of revolutionary zero energy, sustainably based environment like we have completely within the public infrastructure was a mm -hmm. critical testbed to show that our theories can be compatible with existing social structures. So it's been really important, I think, for us to open the doors of discovery as widely as possible um, mm -hmm. to have guests from not only around the United States, but around the world come and see that we don't just talk about these things in the books that we write, we yeah. actually put them into practice, which is the work that we set out to do every day. Yeah, I, I would I would absolutely fully agree. I think we visited that school, Jenny, about five years ago uh, together. And um, I can only imagine the progression and the progress and the innovation that's continually happened during that period of time. So looking forward to hearing more about that. But both as Jenny mentioned and as Keith mentioned, we're here today a little bit to talk about the book trailblazers for whole school sustainability and what this book is about um, and I loved all the different stories that I could connect with from educators and students um, and school leaders who have reimagined their schools through the lens of sustainability. While each school and district story is different, what stood out to me is their passion is a consistent driving factor across the board. But this book is just a mark in time. Um, more books are coming, are coming up and showing deeper pathways, as you and I have been talking about, Jenny. It's just a starting point. Um, and we'll be talking a bit more about that, what's coming up in the future. But let's first talk about the schools. As this book features catalyst schools like Discovery, which is obviously your school key, Virginia Beach City, Oak Park Unified. So, Jenny, can you share with our audience what is a catalyst school? And I'd be kind of curious what your thoughts on that as well, Keith. So when we started, the Green Schools National Network founded the Green Schools National Conference in 2010. So we're, you know, 11 years um, from the beginning of the conference. And as we 
got to know and and meet all of the leaders that were um, committed to this work, mm -hmm. we found threads and themes. And, and you're right, the passion is one thing that I think is absolutely essential. And so I think that when we look at the content of the book and we have identified four different areas that are essential for change and um, you know those include leadership, curriculum and instruction, culture and climate and facilities and operations. And each of the case studies in the book just sh shares a different story. Every pathway, every school becomes a green, healthy, equitable school in its own way, whether it has a facility um, as unique and beautiful as Discovery, or if it is a large public school with over a hundred, you know, schools in within its system, everybody finds a point of entry, and that's what I think is beautiful about the green schools movement. There's no one right way. Everybody, it, it's something that every child deserves every mm -hmm. child should attend a healthy equitable and sustainable school if we are going to create a sustainable future and so being able to bring forward these trailblazers that are you know have pushed against the status quo and keith your your description of of being a rebel and being a revolutionary our educators are revolutionary. They, every single one of them understands that if we want the future to be the same as today, we need to keep doing the same thing that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And that is not acceptable. Nobody accepts that as how we want our children and our children's children to grow and mature. So we're about changing the systems and the schools and districts I identified in this book are doing that for us. Wow. And Keith, what would you add to that? You know, I would say I, I completely agree with Jenny's assessment. And it is because we are actual practitioners on the ground that we can bring some clarity to what it is when we talk about being a revolutionary school. Mm -hmm. Being a revolutionary school leader is about implementing what is best for children in spite of inconvenience. It is doing the right thing, not the easy thing. Mm -hmm. And yes, that takes political will, but Oftentimes, that's really the only thing that it takes is the courage and the integrity to do what the research tells us to do, to implement research-based practice, even when it may not be convenient. Um, discovery serves as a good example in many ways, but not the least of which, one of the questions we can immediately brush aside from the start is, yeah, but how much more money did you spend on discovery? The average school cost for a 600-seat elementary school with its amenities accounting for land value in our area is $40 million. And we built Discovery for 41 and a half. You can do this. You can build a revolutionary school that's designed for, of, and by children mm -hmm. without spending additional money. You just have to have the courage to do it. Yeah, now, it's yeah. one thing to build the building. As you mentioned, what we do inside the building becomes essential. But if you have the direction, if you look at going forward in that way to build the thing in the first place, now you need to see it through that catalyzes the change in practices because you change the environment. Right. right. And that's where when we talk about the catalyst network, all of the schools and school districts that are part of the network 
<coughs> because they're doing this work, they are catalysts for change. We needed right. to put something into the system that would generate energy, that would shift thinking, that would allow a new way and a new approach to emerge. Mm -hmm. That's what the Catalyst Network is. We're blazing the trail. We're bringing new combinations. And the beautiful thing about the work is that it doesn't stop. It hasn't stopped with the case studies that are in this book. That's Every right. single one of the schools, when I go back and read this right now, I'm like, oh my God, if we were writing this today about that school or that school district, it would be something different because they have left that best practice behind mm -hmm. and are in merging and, and developing and designing new approaches that are even better and better than meeting you know, better at meeting the needs of their students, better at, you know, conserving resources, better at creating healthy spaces for people, for teachers and leaders to live, because we know that they live in those buildings more, you know, during the school year and some during the summer than they're at home. Right. So Absolutely. these are living spaces. These are not spaces just you know, they're not sell and bell schools, which is the old model. They are throwing out those um, traditional approaches to learning and and advancing on a on a year by year basis. It's just it's like unpeeling an onion. Once they do something, they realize they can't get, go back to what they used to be doing. They need to keep going forward. Right. This network is built on progressive, forward-thinking individuals who know that we are preparing 22nd century leaders. And a living community in addition to a living environment. Jen yeah. is exactly right. The ossification of traditional structures. If a structure is dried up and doesn't work anymore, then we have no problem crumbling it down and recycling it. <laughs> Maybe we say something other than destroy now, but to right. recycle that institutionalism. But because the community is thriving and vital, it is ever-changing, as it must be to respond yeah. to the ever-changing yeah. environment in which our children are growing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think the key thing is, is that, you know, the book and the, what you're both sharing today is change is happening, right? It's happening at Discovery. It's happening at other schools such as Oak Park, Austin ISD, Boulder Valley, Virginia Beach, and obviously many more. I think, Keith, I'd love you to, and this is the, the part that often comes up, right? For me, it's like people say, well, how do you keep your team to stay focused on the change you're trying to create? So how do you do that at Discovery and at the district? And how do you continue to influence your students, your educators, and obviously the broader community? How do you do that? Well, the most important part from a school practices perspective is to have the organizational structures within the school that are able to be as responsive as they need to be. One of the keys that we identified in um, the Trailblazers book, I wrote chapter 13 of the work, was uh, Arlington Public Schools had the presence of mind to hire our leader, our principal, Dr. Aaron Russo, um, a, a terrific friend and champion as well as Amazing. colleague. Um, her, she was hired a year before the school opened and was able to structure and build a team rooted in deep and meaningful uh, research and leadership practices to get ready for the school to open. But she's kept those organizational elements together. We have a robust 
coaching culture. We have a robust teacher leadership culture. We have a lot of, we're not necessarily a flat organization, but a lot of features of flat organizations where there's a lot of equity, there's a lot of commonality and a clear, transparent set of communications so that we can keep vital and agile. Um, having uh, the ability to afford the teachers the kind of time, we have an hour every single school day uninterrupted and unencumbered in addition to planning time for mm. our collaborative leadership teams to work together within the teacher culture. That requires a massive change to the way that you organize your school day, the way that you staff your school day. But as I often say to people, is this an adult problem or a kid problem? That's an adult problem. We can solve that. You just have to have a good leadership team together to be able to craft things like master schedules and staffing plans to be able to bring things like that about. That's one good example, having that kind of flexibility and agility at the leadership level. From the county perspective, when you get upwards in the organization, something that we highlight in our book is that you have to have organizational champions. You right. have to have people that are clearly understanding of the importance of this work and in some cases are willing to be paladins and defend against the encroachment of that neoliberal industrial traditionalism that's trying to hammer it back to what is familiar even if that familiarity is what's wrong for kids right having yeah. those high level champions is very important so mm -hmm. we just got a new assistant uh, superintendent for facilities and operations but she's coming from the ground as a teacher you know, right. she became a teacher, then a principal. We'll help educate her about the aspects of discovery, but we're promoting leaders from within who have on the ground experience as teachers. And that's very helpful. We're not fighting that institutional mindset. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I love that. You know, it's from the ground up, you know, because we all know that change doesn't happen in a silo. Right. It just doesn't. And we all know that, you know, the work that you love around sustainable system change with, you know, green schools, Jenny embraces and propels people forward. And you bring each school into that catalyst network. I think about that as how, you know, part of the work we do here at Naturopod is to have conversations with key stakeholders early and often. Right. And who mm -hmm. are those stakeholders with the goal of getting change from within and being open and transparent within those conversations. But as I suspect, as you're both doing your work and often through challenging conversations where there may be misalignment and differing views on the impact of what you're trying to achieve or the involvement in students in the design process or, you know, bringing up an educator up as a leader in the team. But those can, I find for me, those challenging conversations are fuel for continuing the work to expand thinking on a micro level to see macro change, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wonder, how do you approach micro change management to trailblaze for a more sustainable future? Micro, micro. So you're talking about initiatives. That's right. So, okay. Yes. So um, we, again, we're coaches. Um, Green Schools National Network is a coaching model. Um, we do not um, prescribe anything. We work and listen to our partners uh, to what their needs are, and we coach. And so when we begin work or when somebody approaches us to support them, we mm -hmm. listen. We spend more time listening and exploring and learning about that partner to find out where their values are and where their interests are and where their passion is. And so 
um, in this change process, you know, you, it can, um, Tim Baird, who is our director of partnership, talks about the three G's, you know, for a, in a district that is not, or a school that it has, you know, does not have a revolutionary building or even a revolutionary leader. Right. Um, Tim talks about the three G's, gardens, green teams, and garbage. Um, and all of those can engage students in action. Um, and so the students become the voice. Yes. But there are opportunities and in, in how to plan and implement those processes that create um, ripples for systems change. And so I think that starting small is, is critical it, in every situation. Uh, when we, I mean, again, the case studies in this book are pretty profound. Um, yes. But not everybody started, even, you know, not everybody owns where their starting point was. Um, and so, um, you know, as individuals, as an individual teacher in a school, as a sustainability leader in a district, as a, you know, who's in the facilities department and has no leverage in curriculum and instruction or leadership, you know, there are ways and, and success. You know, it's through taking on a small initiative, being able to articulate how it worked, what the impact was, and celebrating that. So I, I think of Tim Cole in Virginia Beach, where they have the largest square footage per capita of lead building space. Mm -hmm. um, and in their district, his work started with a, um, as he would say, a covert operation of students, you know, on a campaign to stop school bus idling. And they were able to demonstrate a savings, a cost savings in fuel. Yeah. Um, and, and in Virginia Beach, which is one of the most conservative communities in the country, that was critical. They were able to articulate through an economic lens um, an action that was important for resource conservation and air quality and, 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 mm -hmm. um, and the board responded because it was economic. So um, those are the small wins that lead to larger openings. Yeah. And I, I think about that and I think about the small wins at Encinitas, you know, with the straw recycling program and how that transformed, but you know, there's a lot of different micro examples that feed into the macro change, right, in terms of how you actually do that from a more sustainable perspective. But Keith, you know, what do you feel it really takes to truly prepare students and teachers and school staff to help shape a just and sustainable future? Like, I know it's a big question and quite a big goal, but if you were to kind of highlight those key points based on your experience and where you're currently at and moving forward, what would that look like? Well, I think you've raised exactly the bridge to uh, what Jenny was just talking about. We frequently talk about scale, getting right. the small wins, getting the small things started. But we recognize that, you know, people who are in networks like the three of us are, when we look at the scale of the problem, we are talking about arguably the most significant sized problem in the history of our species. So scaling up from small needs to happen quickly and frequently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's most important to us doing that is, is relevance. Um, the issue that we face with our students in terms of pedagogy is precisely the same problem that the school board member will face with an individual parent, is if it isn't relevant, if you don't tell me how it impacts me, 
I'm not going to listen. This ancient idea, the now outdated and outmoded idea of the deficit model of information is something we need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And we saw this with the COVID crisis and we see it with climate science, with senators holding snowballs on the floor of, of our houses. You, it has to be made individually relevant because just shouting information at people is not going to change anybody's mind. How does it no. impact me? No. And that to me is one of the most critical and essential elements of changing the way that it looks on the ground mm -hmm. for students. Yeah. We can't just talk about sustainability and expect that everybody will right. buy into it. Mm -hmm. We need to find the ways to engage in relevant and authentic pedagogy for each individual child. The things that light up the individual kid will only be discovered through a meaningful relationship with that child that does not judge him as invalid, that does not depress her as unwilling, that does not put and compartmentalize them into a space where they're not a real person. That takes individualized relationships with meaningful and high quality teachers. Now, that seems like a good general idea, but policy after policy after policy gets instituted that undermines our ability to hire them, that undermines our ability to train and uplift them, that denies them compensation and pay. So the thing, the, the critical element to me is not implementing a lesson plan or a curriculum. Mm -hmm. It is changing the nature of the relationships that we as a society have with teachers so that we can facilitate the relationships that we know are essential between teachers and children. That means smaller class sizes, higher pay, better working conditions. The, the commonality of the issue of the worker remains as relevant to the improvements that we see now that they have since we discovered that industrial neoliberalism isn't going to serve the workers, the poor, and the needy of our society. So we have to change the way in which we approach the teachers and give them the ability and the latitude to teach authentically and effectively and support them through that robust uh, coaching culture. It requires a shift of leadership. It used to be the person who said that we could only ever do this from the ground up. But the yeah. reason that I went into a leadership position in a school is because now I recognize sometimes you have to put down the, the Gandalf staff and say, you shall not pass and stand <laughs> in defense of teachers and children. That yeah. to me, while the unexpected answer many times, I think is every bit the foundation that it sounds like in order to build on the implementation of a, of a serious sustainable curriculum. I, I also think that one of the things that you just talked about, Keith, that is so mm -hmm. essential is we talk about equitable and sustainable um, schools, healthy, equitable and sustainable schools. And the issues that you're addressing related to teachers and empowering teachers to be the professionals that they are and providing the resources and the supports to, to allow that to emerge, I think is something, it's, a, it's an equity issue. Oftentimes when we talk about equity, we, we think about racial um, injustice and that sort of thing. But, but what you're talking about, the policy barriers that we are now facing in education to be professionals and to do the work that we are, you know, that we are called to do is um, about allowing, I mean, creating change and, and changing the policies to allow the, the change to happen. We, we cannot go back to the 1950s. We cannot go back even to the 1990s or even to the early thousand, 2000s. Um, we cannot go back. Um, we know too much now. We have, we have, we're seeing too much now. 
And so that empowerment of teachers and leaders to take ownership of their environments and supporting their children and their community is absolutely essential. So mm -hmm. I love um, the way that you articulate that. And, and I'm going to say that it's leading us into the next book. <laughs> yeah. There really is this intersectionality between equity and sustainability. So when we talk about sustainability, we talk about the triple bottom line, people, profit, planet. And, and oftentimes we get stuck on the planet side of things or the economic side of things. But, but um, to have a sustainable future, we have to have an equitable, healthy and equitable um, society. And so that's the next book because um, we have documented and we know the best practices on the physical operations side of things. And so it's culture, climate, leadership, and how do we create these systems to support equitable and just and sustainable societies and schools for every child and everybody who works in those schools. That is the critical component. And I love Keith that you keep bringing us back to that because it is something that is absolutely critical. So thank you for continuing to circle back to that. Yeah, and, and I, I concur and I feel like as, as you were both speaking, you know, my, my heart filled with the, of all the spaces of what's really possible, but I keep coming back to the, why is this not happening more? Like, you know, Keith, at the beginning, you mentioned, you know, really our budget was 40 and we spent, you know, uh, 41.5, I believe, if I recall correctly. And, yep. and I, Jenny, I know you talk about how budget is often a barrier and issue, but how do we make it more important to know that health and wellness becomes like an initiative rather than the environment because it's more easily understood? But what, what do you feel today if someone heard from you that would make a difference to them to go, I'm going to now make this more important than I did yesterday? Because I struggle with that every single day. It's like, the learning environment, the space you're in, the indoor, the outdoor, what could be more important, the health and wellness of that pure children? Well, we have a unique opportunity right now because of COVID to say that we have to redesign our schools. Many of the environments that stayed closed and were unable to respond to the best practices of health and wellness around children is because those facilities were never designed with the health and wellness of children in mind. A school like Discovery can say, we already have an indoor air quality system second to none with a UV irradiating high efficiency health system that can filter out things to the tiniest micron and pumps in fresh oxygen when CO2 gets above uh, 900 parts per million. And schools go, well, yeah, but how do you afford that? We afforded it the same way that you can, right? So I think that if we talk about health and wellness right now and capitalize upon the zeitgeist of fear of infection, and say, okay, so I can make you a school or retrofit your school or design that next addition to your school in a way that will make sure it can stay open more often to keep your kids in-person learning. Ooh, ears perk up. And I can do it for the same amount of money or less, ears perk up, and save you money in the long term in terms of the overall cost of the operation of the facility yeah. and design it in a way that helps your kid learn better and is happier there. What's not to love? But like you said, what's the hook right now? I think we should capitalize upon the fact that many schools stayed closed because of the design of the facility. Yeah. That is the hook right now, in my opinion. 
Agreed. Jenny, would you, what, what are your thoughts on that? So I have a, a variety um, of, of pieces. I believe, I totally agree with health and, and wellness. Um, and I think um, climate change is impacting health and wellness and impacting our schools as well. I mean, the COVID, COVID um, virus, some you know, climate scientists are looking at the conditions that are being created now for the replication of viruses. So um, I actually, you know, again, the science is there and it's an environmental issue, but it's a justice issue. And it is linked to all of the environmental um, justice issues that we have um, been dealing with. Mm-hmm. I think if we do not address the issues related to climate change, um, we are, and the solutions, if we do not look at education and school buildings as a solution to climate change, we're missing um, a, a critical factor. So I'm reading my, my recent book um, here is Speed and Scale um, by John Doerr. And he has you know, identified very simple um, areas that we need to focus. And a school system is involved in all of those things. Transportation, so we need to electrify our transportation system. We need to decarbonize, and Keith's school is an example of that. We need to fix food systems, and we have schools and districts that are, you know, going back and returning to local foods. Um, we need to protect nature. Those are all things that our schools are engaged in right now. We need green cleaning and green purchasing um, practices. And we need to, you know, be intentional about removing carbon and building soils and planting more, you know, ecosystems. So not just protecting, but but expanding. Educators and students understand and know this. They're creating pollinator gardens. They're creating rain gardens. They're, you know, doing, children are doing this work already um, in project-based and place-based schools. And so, and when, even our underserved communities and schools with really high levels of um, underserved and historically excluded populations, when they are creating relevant curriculum, they are also seeing increased reading and math scores. Um, They are seeing increased engagement and attendance. Those are the things. So when I look at a school district and I think of health and well-being budgets, and academic performance. I also don't think that we are telling the story on academic performance in these schools. Um, And we have to be able to toot our horn and talk about what's happening um, in regards to college and career readiness and real world learning. All of these things are happening in these schools. Um, And we then, you know, but we'll, you know, fine tune and we'll focus just on, you know, the easy things, but, but the teaching and learning processes, you know, are amazing that are happening in these schools and we have to get better at documenting and, and, you know, showcasing that sort of, that's another book, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Sign me up. Um, And so I, I, again, it is, 
it is about health and well-being, but we can't have health and well-being if we can't have, if we're not connected with the planet and the natural world. So, you know, um, and schools, really great schools can um, model, like school like um, Keith's, those kids go to school and when they go home and their furnaces or their lights are on all the time and their furnaces are running all the time or inefficient, I bet they speak up. When they're they not do. being when they're yeah. not being served healthy food, I bet they speak up at home. Mm-hmm. Um, Revolutionary they, schools like these can become the very center of a community yeah. and ought to. Like both of you said, these schools are not just during the school day or even during the school yeah. year. They can and should become a transformational epicenter. Not only can they be for every community, including underserved, but especially in those that have been historically underserved. Yeah, especially. And I, I you know, I, I hope, I mean, my hope today is that uh, the people that have joined us on this episode and can hear the words from both of you, there is something in there, a nugget for them to kind of look at it differently for tomorrow. Because and asking the questions, if not now, when? And why not? And what is your barrier to move forward? And whatever it is in your community, in your leadership, in your vision that is there that's stuck, Find the creative ways to find the next way to take that step and engage in that conversation because it is essential. The stakes are high for our children, their children and future generations. Um, And if if there isn't the time to do it, like now it is. So, but I, um, what I'd love to share to sort of we wrap up our episode today is what's next for both of you? What is your, like, what does that look like? What is, where do you see yourself in five years time? Well, um, I've just finished my doctorate and my certificate of school management and leadership at Harvard. Um, I did my doctorate at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. And the work that I did, the research that I've done, um, will spur some additional writing. So my immediate plans are to get Discovery fully back on its feet uh, following the pandemic to make sure that we've made the adjustments that we need to so that the soul and spirit of our school, that Mm -hmm pro-child, pro-teacher, forward-leaning, you know, aggressively trying to do the right thing sort of culture um, is able to be fully reconstructed, enhanced, and forwarded, right? We're not going to go back and build the Discovery pre-pandemic. We're going to build, you know, Discovery 17.0. But once that gets done and we get that fully rooted, there's quite a bit more writing to to, to be done. But it is my hope at some point, and this is not any shock to my principal, I'm not revealing anything, but my objective in becoming, in joining the school leadership track is we need more principals. We need more assistant principals and principals who can do the work on the ground to implement the things that we've talked about. And so as a revolutionary pro-child leader, that's probably a, a next step for me. Um, in my career, at least, uh, because the word must be spread. We have to replicate these things, again, not only in places that are unexpected, but especially in places that are unexpected. (laughs) So finding a good partnership with a community that's looking to make some forward progress, um, you know, coach put me in, as it were. So for me personally, um, it's to continue doing this work in a new and unexpected place, wherever that may be. Tell us where you want to go and we'll find, help you find that spot. <laughs> yeah. And, and always know we're going to be right behind you. So whatever we can do to help move that forward, you make sure that we're in your, we're in your effort. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Jenny, what about you? 
So I actually, you know, five years from now, who knows what I'm going to be doing, but you know, I'm, I'm at the, um, I'm at the apex. Is it the apex? I'm at the, <laughs> at the apex of my career. I, um, the green schools national network and the work that we're doing is, is a legacy project for me. Um, it has allowed um, me to integrate and push my continue to push myself but integrate everything I learned in the first 40 plus years of my education career and you know continue to push myself in advance um, in new ways and new ways of thinking um, and so I don't see that I will ever stop being a rabble rouser and supporting and promoting um, the work that we do. I think I will um, possibly not be in the role as the leader of the Green Schools National Network in five years, but I'll be doing something related to what the Green Schools National Network is doing. Um, I actually want to grow up and be like Jane Goodall. You know, she's in her 80s right now. She is on a, you know, she continues to speak and advocate, you know, for, um, you know, the planet and for hope, you know, and bringing action and empowering young people um, to take action. Um, and so I, I'm going to model myself after Jane Goodall. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, internally, we still have research and evaluation pieces that, you know, we want to get funded and roll forward. We have, um, we have a waiting list of districts and schools to come into the network now, which is a really exciting um, problem to have. So, you know, we're in a growth mode. Yeah. Um, and so working with my team to figure out how to, you know, take us to the next level and what that's going to be, but um, providing tools and resources for individuals like Keith to keep doing the work and Aaron, his principal, and all of the people that we um, know and honor. Um, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm a rabble rouser, but um, the work that we do is about documenting and empowering the leaders who are doing the work. It's not about us. It is about them and it is about their work and their commitment to their students. And um, I want this organization to always be seen as that, that it's not about us. We're not self-promoters. It is about the work that um, is happening in the schools. And that I think is most essential. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, I can only see um, many great things for, for you, Jenny, in the future. And I think Jane Goodall's a wonderful aspiration to, to be focused on. You are definitely an incredible rebel rouser, bringing collective people together. It's one of the reasons that I love you is that you're always challenging the status quo. I know there's going to be more books coming from, from the green schools and possibly from you too, Keith, maybe, you know. Undoubtedly. I hope so. Let you us know? know what we need to support you in that as well. You know, maybe there's some pieces there or maybe there's another platform or way that we could look at this differently because as we keep thinking about moving forward, right, and what's really there, um, the thing that from today and each each day, and I think the pandemic's taught me something, is obviously each day is a magical moment. But today we have hope, right? We have more hope than yesterday. We know that as we move forward, generations will be engaged, passionate and much more. They'll be ready for change, right? And 
you know, they will do the work needed to restore balance to society and the planet. We keep listening to our children. They'll actually give us the answers that we're looking for, right? So, um, you know, that's what I'm really leaving leaving with today, amongst with many other tidbits of, of information. Um, and thank you so much to both of you for, for joining me today, for sharing your experience, your wisdom, um, your rebel-rousing, your innovation. And I really encourage our audience to learn more about the Catalyst Network. Check out Trailblazers uh, for Sustainability. Look at um, what Green Schools National Network is doing and, you know, check out David Reeves. Sorry, Keith Reeves. I keep saying David. I don't know why is that. <laughs> I know it's, it's Keith David Reeves' professor. There you go. There you go. I'm wondering why. Like, you know, um, but keep following uh, Keith. You know, who knows what he's going to be doing in the future and um, and follow what he's uh, sharing it with his work. And also check out Discovery Elementary. Um, that's a really great one. We have yeah. a virtual tour online. Just Google Discovery Elementary School. It's the first thing that comes up. Yeah. yeah, it is unbelievable, unreal. So thank you again. Thank you to our audience. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you, Bridget. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>